0: following audio is from river city baptist church in richmond virginia for more information visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org
1: now learn this lesson from the fig tree as soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out you know that the summer is near even so you see these things happening you know that it is near right at the door Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know what, when that time will come. It is like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether it be the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone,
0: watch. If you have a copy of God's word, please turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Last week, we made it through verse 27. Uh, This week, uh, we intend to finish the chapter. But because this whole thing is one speech from Jesus, you can kind of think of this as one sermon in two parts. Uh, We're going to be picking up where we left off. And so if you weren't here last Sunday, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message online because it it really will help clarify some of the stuff we're going to be thinking about together this morning. Sure enough, this is one of the most perplexing and debated chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, We saw that last week. There's all kinds of confusion and disagreement about what this or that means, but the central thrust is clear. As we saw last week, Jesus predicts the future and he rules and reigns over the chaos of history. We may differ on some of the uh, lesser details, but that is the big detail, that Jesus is sovereign in the heavens, and we can trust his promises, we can heed his word, and we can walk by faith uh, as we await the day when our faith turns to sight. Now here's what I think is the main idea of uh, this sermon part two. So the the end of the chapter, Mark chapter 13, verses 28-28. 37. The main idea of Mark 13, 28 to 37. Jesus's words can be trusted, so get ready for his return. I think it's that that simple. I think that's the main idea of the passage and therefore of this message. Jesus's words can be trusted, so get ready for his return. We'll think about this in uh, two simple points. First, trust his words and prepare for his return. Trust his words. We'll see that in verses 28 to 31 and prepare for his return. Verses 32 to 37. So first, trust his words. Look at verse 28. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it's near right at the door. Jesus gives this little parable about a fig tree and here it's it's not representing rebellious unbelieving Israel as we saw in chapter 11 when he cursed the fig tree and it withered at the roots. Now what he's doing is just making a very basic observation that summer doesn't just suddenly show up. No, you you can see that summer is on the horizon. You can see that it's coming when you notice changes in something like a fig tree. So what is Jesus referring to by this? I mean, is he talking about the end of the temple? as we saw last week, or the end of the world? Well, well, again, we we have to pay careful attention to that little phrase that shows up in verse 29, these things. Perhaps you remember that from last week. Jesus says, when you see these things happening. So so the question we should be asking here is, what are these things in the context of Mark 13? Where else have we seen that phrase? Answer, answer only once, back in verse four, when he predicted the temple would be leveled and reduced to rubble and the disciples asked, when will these things happen? And so I think the most natural uh, way to understand verse 29 is that Jesus is deliberately closing the loop He's closing the loop with a view to that future unthinkable cataclysm that happened in AD 70, which is why he then says, verse 30, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. There's that phrase for a third and final time these things. He's still responding to the question of verse 4. And the most natural way to understand what he says here is not that that word generation means the Jewish race or something generic like that, but that it simply means what it's meant elsewhere in Mark. Unnormal 40-ish year generation. And sure enough, this prediction in verse 30 comes to pass. It comes to pass with staggering accuracy. The generation he was speaking to here did not pass away. Just as he said, it did not pass away before the temple came down. Now, now this is the verse, perhaps more than any other in a very debated chapter, that that skeptics of the Bible just have a field day over. And you can understand, because if you're taking all of this to be referring to the second coming of Christ, then, then they say, look, Jesus clearly got it wrong. He thought, he even promised that he would come back Within the lifetime of his disciples, obviously that didn't happen. And so obviously, Jesus, bless his heart, was simply mistaken. But of course, that perspective assumes something. There's a premise there. That, that I at least don't accept it, it that, that perspective assumes that verse 30 is referring to his second coming, which is just not the case. If you attend carefully to his actual words, he doesn't say this generation won't pass away until I've returned. If he said that he'd be wrong. But he says, this generation won't pass away until all these things have happened. Which again, as we saw last week, based on verse 4, is referring to the events of AD 70. Jesus was spot on. And then comes the mic drop, verse 31. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass. Pass away. So beyond the rubble and the dust of the temple, even beyond history itself, will stand the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an astounding thing to say. Perhaps if, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're just used to reading Jesus saying things like this, but think about it. Think about what it would have been like, how it would have come across for a first century itinerant rabbi from Galilee to say something like this. In fact, it's an echo of scriptures like Isaiah chapter 40, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever Or Psalm 102, in the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. (laughs) The heavens, that is the skies, will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be discarded. But you, O God, remain the same and your years will never end. And Jesus Christ dares to echo such statements which means the words of God are the words of Jesus and the words of Jesus are the words of God. And as God, as the creator, he's saying, just as my words preceded heaven and earth, just think about uh, Genesis chapter one, just as my words preceded heaven and earth, birthed heaven and earth, so also will my words outlive them. What a clear claim to deity. Sometimes his claims to deity are really subtle. This one is not. If, if you have eyes to see, he is claiming to be God in the flesh. I, I mean, seriously, if, if you think Jesus was just a good moral teacher, and, and let me just say this like, uh, the, if, if, if you're here and, and you are skeptical about the Bible or about Jesus, we are so happy you're here. And I'm not going to stand up here and, and patronize you by talking to you as if you're a child, okay? Uh, unless you're a child who is here visiting. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, but, but I'm not going to stand up here and make things seem, make the stakes seem lower than they are. I'm going to level with you, I'm going to be candid with you because I trust that's what you want. Otherwise, why would you have come to church today? There are a hundred other things you could be doing with your Sunday morning, but you're here for a reason. Perhaps you don't even know why you're here, why you decided to come, but I believe that God wanted you here. And so listen to me when I say that if you just think Jesus was a good moral teacher, that's all he was, then with respect, you're just a bad listener. Good moral teachers don't say stuff like this. Here we are staring at a first century Jewish rabbi who has the audacity to say, yeah, did you know that everything in the universe is going to pass away? Everything is going to go, except my words. Listen, friend, you cannot remain comfortably on on the fence You cannot remain comfortably on the fence about a man man who says stuff like this. His claims, statements like this are are like a heat-seeking missile to your indifference about who he actually is. I say this with respect and love. If you walk out of here this morning still categorizing Jesus as a respectable historical figure, but not the son of God. That's disingenuous. That's not an intellectually honest position. You're not listening to what he actually claimed about himself. You want people to listen to you better than you're willing to listen to him. Because respectable people do not say things like this. You need to get off the fence. And if you're here and you think of yourself as a Christian but you're not really turning from your sin and following Jesus, then you too, in light of a verse like this, have your head in the sand. If he's really who he claims he is and who you claim he is, then why are you bored with him? If a stranger were to observe your life, would they deduce That you are enamored with Jesus Christ. Or that he's like we talked about a few weeks ago, an app on your phone that's convenient if you need him, but very easy to ignore. Oh friend, why are you living for lesser things? If you're claiming to be a Christian, if you're claiming to believe verses like Mark 13, 31, then what are you doing living for lesser things? Is it possible you've been a religious person, but not yet a Christian person? You've been a religious person looking like a Christian as if it's Halloween all year round, but in reality, you're not obeying Jesus, living for Jesus. You're obeying yourself, living for yourself. Oh friend, don't yawn at the king of glory. Repent of your boredom and submit your life to the most glorious, beautiful, satisfying person in the universe. But not only is verse 31 a staggering claim, it's also an amazing promise. An amazing promise. He's saying, no matter what happens, which is another way of saying No matter how bleak your circumstances look, and at times they're going to look and feel incredibly bleak, nevertheless, you can cling to the sturdy, reliable, durable power of my words. No amount, he's saying no amount of... Political upheaval or physical turmoil can thwart my promises and my plans. Temples will fall. Empires will rise and fall. Even heaven and earth will pass away. But my words, Jesus dares to say, never, ever will. Brothers and sisters, we exist as a church to trust promises like this to trust promises of King Jesus and to proclaim them not just to one another, but also to a lost and dying world. If you think about this weekly pattern, this drumbeat, we gather on the first day of the week to hear the words of Jesus ring out to us, and then we scatter throughout the week for those same words to reverberate in and through us. First, his words ring out, and then they reverberate among us as we press them into fellow members' hearts and remind them of his promises and character and everlasting love. And you know when that happens, when you're pressing the truths, the promises, the words of Jesus into other members' hearts? It's not just in church-organized events like home groups or Sunday services, or a monthly women's fellowship, uh, or youth events. We're grateful for all of these things. If we didn't believe in those things, we wouldn't be doing them. And yet, so much of this is in just the daily stuff of life. As you're living the Christian life together, meeting up with people over coffee or over dinner, uh, going on walks together, encouraging via text, whatever it takes to press and apply the truths of Jesus which will outlast the known universe into the lives of fellow strugglers and fellow saints. Take initiative, even this week, to reach out to a fellow member and to seek to do them spiritual good by applying the promises of Jesus to their circumstances and reminding them who rules and reigns sovereign over the heavens. Now, this kind of change that the word creates, doesn't happen overnight. But we can believe that his words are still working. When, his, when they ring out on Sundays, when they reverberate throughout the week, we can believe they're still working. Isaiah 55, the, the Lord says, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and don't return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, and this is Isaiah 55, 11. You don't need to turn there. Isaiah 55, 11. You do need to memorize it though. <laughs> so is my word, God says, just like the rain that comes down, waters the earth, produces a crop. Isaiah 55, 11, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Do you see what God is saying? through the prophet Isaiah, not just to ancient Israel, but through the prophet Isaiah, through the tunnels of time down to us today, he's saying, my word is invincible, utterly invincible, but its effects are not always immediate. My word is invincible, but its effects are are not always immediate. Rain doesn't produce a crop overnight. That's the point of the analogy. Rain doesn't produce a crop overnight and nor do sermons, nor do Bible studies, nor do home groups, nor do gospel conversations. Yes, sometimes they do, but usually, usually the word of God works subtly, gradually, and imperceptibly, but working It is, and as we're faithful to gather on Sundays to hear his word ring out and then scatter with it dwelling richly in our hearts so that it can reverberate among us and even beyond us, we will see the fruit begin to grow, the kind of fruit we cannot manufacture, the kind of fruit we can't engineer, the kind that only God can produce. Trust his words. Point two prepare for his return. Prepare for his return. Verse 32, but about that day or hour, now pause. (laughs) Notice Jesus is changing the subject. But about that day or hour, he's no longer talking about these things, the events leading up to AD 70. We saw that phrase in verse 4 and then it reappeared in verses 29 and 30 when he closed the loop. But in verse 32, he's moving on. He, he doesn't say, and continuing about these things. No, he's pivoting to address a different time altogether, but about that day or hour. And as we'll see, it's clear he's referring to his own return. Now, some of you Uh, students of the Bible are are feeling a bit of whiplash. So, So I want you to see the structure of this speech. It's not as random as it may feel. As we saw last week in the first 27 verses, he talked about the first century events that his disciples could expect in the first century. And then he briefly telescoped forward to his return. And this week he does the same thing again. He talks about the first century, as we just saw, and then now telescopes forward to his return. Again, this shouldn't throw us that he's doing this. He's standing in the line of the Hebrew prophets. This is what is called poetic parallelism. Don't get thrown by all those syllables. It's just, just notice the word parallel okay? Parallelism. There's a symmetry in this speech. Verses 1 to 27, the end of the temple becomes a foreshadowing for the end of the world. Verses 28 to 37, the end of the temple foreshadows the end of the world. So what's the connection between verses 31 and 32? it's another transition sentence. He's saying when the temple falls, it's going to feel like heaven and earth are passing away. It's going to feel like the world is ending. The sky is falling. Heaven and earth are passing away. So let me remind you again of the day when they really will pass away. And by the way, let me just say, I realize I am deep in the details of this passage and referencing all kinds of verses and their logical connection. I make no apologies for that. I don't want to preach sermons that you can easily follow along with if your Bible is closed. Okay, so I want to see one of the most beautiful things a preacher can see is the top of a head because someone's nose is in the Bible checking what he's saying to make sure it's true. Where was I? And so he says but about that day or hour, so we're in verse 32, but about that day or hour, no one knows, which, which means just by the way, you should just distrust anyone who ever claims to have figured out when Christ will return. Just automatically discount them because they are disagreeing with Mark thirteen thirty-two. As Adrian Rogers once quipped, when it comes to the timing of the second coming, I'm on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. (laughs) But about that day or hour, no one knows, he says, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, this verse sometimes throws people because it, it sounds as if Jesus is admitting, finally, that he's actually not God, Maybe he's a divine-like being, a godly man, but he's not the God-man. I mean, after all, how can he be divine if he's ignorant about the future? But we've actually already seen this dynamic at play back in Mark 10.40. Remember, Jesus is one person with two natures. Mark 1040, I know I made you curious. We're not going to go look at it, but it's when Jesus says, you know, his, the, the apostles say, hey, can we sit at your right and your left in your coming glory? And remember when Jesus said, ah, that's not for me to grant positions in my coming glory on the right or left is is up to the Father in heaven. He knows that. And so we thought about this dynamic. And if you want to think about it more, you can listen to that message. But you got to remember this. Jesus is one person with two natures. Sometimes scripture records him doing human actions, other times divine actions. That's what it means to be one person with two natures. Now, both things are possible. Jesus can do human actions. Jesus can do divine actions. He he can, as it were, access the the, the register of his deity as well as the, the register of his humanity, even at the same time without ever confusing or combining his humanity and his deity as if they are some kind of hybrid. They're not. They're separate but unified. Separate but not confused. When Jesus says here that even he doesn't know when he's coming back, he is not admitting to being something or someone less than God. What he's admitting to is having a true humanity that is not outfitted, a humanity that is not outfitted with infinite knowledge. Do you realize that even in heaven when you're in your glorified state and free of all sin, you won't have infinite knowledge? That's not a property of being a human. You won't be omniscient. You'll be sinless, but not omniscient, which is actually one reason why I believe heaven must be eternal because it's going to take us all of eternity to figure out what happened when we got saved. It's going to take all of eternity to figure out what God was up to in a thousand different ways in the good times and the bad. And so Jesus here is modeling. He's not denying that he's God. He's modeling what it looks like to be a human in perfect submission to and trust in the will of God, the Father. He continues in verse 33, be on guard be alert. So, so here comes just kind of a flurry of commands. This is what he's wanting to press on our hearts. Be on guard, be alert. You don't know when the time will come. And then to illustrate, he offers another little parable. Verse 34, it's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you don't know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. And so just as he said before the parable, be on guard, be alert, he now says at the end, verse 37, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch, watch. We this morning are included in that word, everyone. And that's the, 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 the word he wants ringing in our ears. Everyone watch. So how do we do that practically as Christians, as a church? How can you live ready, live ready for his return? Of course, whole books could be written about this, have been written about this, but I'll just give you uh, three implications or applications of his return for our lives today. Three implications of the return of Jesus, the second coming for our lives today. First, the return of Christ fosters hope. The return of Christ fosters hope. Remember, Mark's readers were not culturally ascendant. (laughs) They, They were suffering under the oppression of Rome, the most powerful empire in the history of the world. Life was often brutal as they followed a crucified Savior. And so the earliest Christians looked with hope and longed for the day when Jesus would finally come back, finally return to make all things new. And just like them, we have the down payment of that hope in the resurrection of Christ. But it's just that for now. It's, it's a down payment. The fullness is yet to come. You know how sometimes you're outside and you, you think you may have felt a raindrop. It was just a, a little bit of mist or water and you're like, that's what we've received now and experienced now compared to the ocean of mercy and joy that awaits us. Beloved, we only receive a small part of our salvation in this life. And so we need to keep looking beyond the drop to that ocean. Ever since death came into the world through sin, human beings have not been able to escape it. Human beings have not ever been able to, by themselves, extricate themselves from the jaws of death. It appears so invincible so unstoppable. Some of you are walking through situations regarding death right now. It feels so hopelessly normal, and it is normal, but it's not natural. Death is an intruder. In Genesis 3, the intruder was born, but in the resurrection of Jesus, the intruder was defanged, and at the return of Jesus, that intruder will be destroyed. So if you're struggling with life in a fallen world, and if you're not, I'd like to meet you. If you're, if you're struggling, if you're lonely, if your marriage is having hardship, if your child is making choices you never raised them to make, if your loved one is withering away from a disease, if, you're, if your body is racked with chronic pain that just won't let up, then Jesus is saying to you, If you're losing heart, if you're losing hope, Jesus is saying to you, dear child, lift your eyes. I've not forgotten you. I've not forgotten you. I've sent my Holy Spirit. I've sent the comforter to be with you, to console you, to help you. And one day soon, I'm going to come back and I'm going to wipe every tear from your eyes one by one by one. And it's going to take a while because there will be a lot of tears to wipe away. And I am going to bring about, usher in, a new and better world. And this changes everything in the present, doesn't it? This kind of hope. I, I've heard it compared to two people, two employees who are Hired for the same kind of work, say in the, the same kind of office job, each with a with a one-year contract. And, and there's a uh, and, and and the job is exhausting, it's mind-numbing, 60 hours a week, filing papers, just dreadfully boring. But there's one difference between the two employees. They have been promised different bonuses if they complete the year. One of them has been told that, that if you complete this year, maybe the worst year of working in your life, you'll, you'll get a $2,000 bonus. The other has been told privately, you're going to get a $20 million bonus. Now, imagine on an ordinary Thursday, the conversation transpiring in the, uh, in the lunchroom. You know, employee A is saying, this is the worst year of my life. I don't know what I've gotten into, but this is horrible. This is not worth it. I don't know why I'm doing this. Meanwhile, uh, employee B is just munching on his lunch saying, I don't don't really know what you're talking about. This kind of feels like a, a piece of cake to me. What's the difference between the two employees? It's not their daily toil. It's their respective futures. And each future is a difference maker in the present. And the same is true for us today. And believer, your future is far more dazzling, far more bright, far more hopeful than just $20 million. You are going to inherit the world. You are going to inherit God himself, and he's going to give you the entire estate. The return of Christ fosters hope. Number two, this is a lesson, implication, application, whatever you want to call it. Number two, the return of Christ fuels obedience. So it fosters hope and it fuels obedience. This is what Jesus' parable is getting at. You need to be obeying the owner of the house, doing your assigned tasks, even when you don't see him. And actually, this is one reason why I think the Bible is deliberately ambiguous, deliberately ambiguous about exactly when the second coming will happen. Not if it will, but when. It's so that every generation of believers down to us this morning would live with a sense of urgency. After all, when Jesus returns, his question for you is not going to be, did you get the date right? His question is going to be, what were you doing? Have you ever realized that the vast majority of the New Testament's commands are tethered to the second coming? The majority of the New Testament's moral commands are tied to the second coming. In our scripture reading earlier in the service, we read the words of the Apostle Peter. Remember, Mark's main source for his gospel. And here's what Peter proceeds to say in the verses following the scripture reading. 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? So you see the, the, the move there? He's reasoning from the future return of Christ to our present daily lives. What kind of people ought you to be? And then he says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming but in keeping with his promise we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells second peter 3:14 so then dear friends since you are looking forward to this make every effort to be found spotless blameless and at peace with him or in second or in 1 Thessalonians 4, which we looked at last week. It was actually our scripture reading last week. This is one reason you should keep your service guides. So you can go back and look at that easily. Um, Or, of course, you could just turn there in your Bibles. Our scripture reading last week was all about this this passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, where the Lord descends on the clouds and believers are caught up together to meet him in the air. And so much ink has been spilled on what that means for the timing and the sequence of future events, how everything will play out at the end of the world. But people miss how the passage ends the very final verse in 1st Thessalonians 4 after he's talking about the return of Jesus is 1st Thessalonians 4:18 therefore encourage one another with these words encourage one another with these words. Eschatology is a fancy word. It means the study of the end times. And some Christians tend to give so much energy to those little details, the sequence and the timing of how everything will unfold. And sure, that matters. But for Paul, eschatology is not about satisfying your curiosity. It's about transforming your life. Eschatology is about encouragement That's the command. Encourage one another with these words, with the second coming of Christ. And that's just two, 2 Peter 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, that's just two of many examples in the New Testament. On page after page after page of your Bible, the second coming functions like one of those self-propelled lawnmowers that uh, kind of pulls you forward as it goes. Now, the thing about those self-propelled, propelled lawnmowers is they're not doing all the work for you. You still have to be out there. You still have to be putting one step in front of the other. You still have to be sweating. You can't let go, but there's a motor that is slightly pulling you forward. And the promise of the king's return is meant to be the motor, the motor for your Christian life, pulling you forward in a fallen and broken world until the day you see him face-to-face. I mean, here's just one practical example. We could think of so many angles on this, like how should the future return of Jesus affect my life this Tuesday afternoon? What practical difference does it make? Here's just one example of many. And I'd encourage you guys over coffee and in other contexts during the week to, to talk with each other about more practical implications. But here's just one that Chris Davis shares in his helpful book, Bright Hope for Tomorrow, How Anticipating Jesus' Return Gives Strength for Today. It's counterintuitive, okay? Listen to this counterintuitive implication for the believer, Quote, focusing on Jesus as judge, focusing on Jesus as judge could actually set you free. If you're anything like me, you already allow yourself, sometimes unconsciously, to live under the judgment of others every day. Whether you're a young mother scrolling through the Instagram feed of picture-perfect moms, a pastor looking at the growing ministry of others, or a homeowner who can't stop noticing how much nicer your neighbor's landscaping is than yours, we all allow ourselves to be judged through constant comparison. Let's be honest, we we have nightmares about hearing the ridicule of our peers, not about standing before the judgment throne of God. What if a focus on Jesus' return could set us free from that? What if dialing up our concern about his assessment would dial down our obsession over the assessment of others. Pondering the second coming can free you to be the kind of person God is calling you this week to be. The return of Christ fosters hope. The return of Christ fuels obedience. And third implication, the return of Christ demands readiness. Fosters hope, fuels obedience, and demands readiness. That's what Jesus is calling for. It's it's also, if you recall, what the parable of the wicked tenants back at the beginning of chapter 11 was about. But just as the warning there was about Israel and the temple leaders not being ready for the Messiah's first coming, this one is about not being ready for his second. And brothers and sisters, when we see the return of Christ with eyes of faith, And remind ourselves of it, it rearranges our priorities. It can't help but rearrange our priorities when we live mindful of that great day. But different ones of us are going to have different tendencies, different temptations. I think there could be at least two main ditches. I mean, one, One tendency, perhaps temptation, is is to just, in light of the coming return of Christ, just kind of bunker up and bide your time until heaven, focusing only on explicitly spiritual things because, after all, Jesus is going to return at any moment. Or two, and I think this one is far more common, if we're honest, forgetting practically. Not theologically forgetting, confessionally forgetting, but practically forgetting about his return, living as if you have more time than you actually do. If you ever watch an English soccer game or football, as they'd say, you may hear an announcer say that uh, the defense, particularly the goalkeeper, got caught out, not called out, caught out. Out, Which means that uh, as the game wore on, the, the, the goalkeeper became more and more comfortable and thought that he or she could move farther and farther away from his or her own goal. And before they know it, the opposing team is able to kick the ball and it sails over the head and it leaves the goalkeeper scrambling only to go pick it up from the back of the net. And Christians too can get caught out. We, we, we can just assume we have more time than we really do. Oh, I, I, can, I can get back. It's going to be fine. But whether from presumption or simply boredom, we can drift too far out of position. And in, in young people here, I, I want to just say to you, it's easy in particular for you to think, oh, I will get serious about my faith later. I'm a a young person. It's not that big of a deal. I have decades ahead of me to get serious about Jesus. You need to be careful that you're not like that soccer goalie who is caught out before it's too late. It is never too early to get serious about your faith. Jesus is worthy of your attention and your affection and your focus and building your life around him. Not so that he fits conveniently into the things that matter most to you, but so that other things fit into where he, around where he stands in your life. Don't believe the lie that living ready, brothers and sisters, that living ready, fixing your focus on the world to come will make you, as they sometimes say, so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. That's rubbish. No one tackled that misconception more memorably than C.S. Lewis, perhaps this um, This quote will sound familiar to some of you, but he said, quote, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean we are to leave the present world as it is. Let me pause the quote and just say, that's what people mean when they say, you're so heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. You're so obsessed with the world to come that you have no interest in this world. You're not going to leave this world a better place. You're not invested here. You're not a good citizen. You're not a good neighbor. You're just pie in the sky, disconnected from reality. Lewis says, it does not mean we're to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. Being heavenly minded is how we become ready for our master's return. Now, we're coming to a close with Mark chapter 13. Uh, We've waded through a lot of difficult, debated details, but we can't miss, again, the main thrust of what Jesus is communicating in his final public speech of his ministry. And you have to understand that 2,000 years ago, Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. We saw that in how he rode into Jerusalem humbly meekly on a donkey in his first coming he didn't come to bring judgment he came to bear it but when he returns he is not going to come to bear judgment in that time he's going to come and he will bring it friend if you're not following jesus today is the day not tomorrow, next Sunday, not next Sunday. Today is the day that you need to finally repent of your boredom and your indifference toward the King of glory. Put your trust in him who came that first time and lived and died and rose in the place of sinners like you and me and who offers mercy free for the taking, but who will one day come back in the glory cloud to judge the living and the dead. We've recited before in our service the words of the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563, that first question and answer, what is your only comfort in life and in death? But here's question 52 that is lesser known from the Heidelberg Catechism. What comfort is it to you that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead? If you can't answer that, then I've failed as a preacher this morning, what comfort is it to you that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead? Now, listen to the answer that believers, believers in Jesus, have been confessing for 500 years that in all my sorrow and persecution, with uplifted head, I eagerly await the judge from heaven. How is that possible? How can we eagerly await the judge? I eagerly await the judge from heaven who has already submitted himself to the judgment of God for me. Oh, friends, that is the gospel. That is our hope. And it's not just what he did when he came. It's what he will do when he comes again. Believer, your future is dazzlingly bright unimaginably bright. So don't spend your best energy. (laughs) Do not waste your life by spending your best energy just watching the headlines or watching the heavens. Watch your heart and be ready for his return. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that we would watch the right things, that we would watch first and foremost our own hearts, that we would live with sober hope, as we anticipate the day of your return. And Lord, we long for that day. And your word tells us to hasten, that we can pray that you would hasten that day. And so even now we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly and make all things new. We pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.